Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. There's an old riddle, you've probably heard it, that goes, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? The answer, practice. Yet I've never heard anybody ask how you get to Stockholm to receive a Nobel Prize for science, which begs the question, how do you get to Stockholm for that most coveted of awards? I'm going to say that part of the answer is to spend time and learn from people like Duke University Professor of Chemistry and Nobel Laureate, Dr. Robert Lefkowitz. Bob is a Columbia Medical School trained physician who loved his clinical work and who stumbled upon the world of scientific research practically by accident. Although he loved being a cardiologist, it turned out he loved being a researcher even more. This outcome in Bob's life has likely impacted your life. I can say this with some certainty because of the drugs on the market today, his research was relevant in the development of one third to one half of those drugs. It's likely that at least one of those medications has helped you at some point. Furthermore, his research is among the most cited in the world. And when you imagine a Nobel laureate scientist, you may think of a researcher quietly, alone, working in a lab all day, talking to no one. That's not Bob. He loves people. He mentors his team and engages them regularly with spectacular interest and vitality. Bob wrote a riveting and highly readable book in 2021 describing his personal and professional life called A Funny Thing Happened on the way to Stockholm. I love the book, and so many credible sources have reviewed the book with overwhelmingly positive reviews. Publishers Weekly said, rarely has science been treated with such a winning blend of humor and humanity. I couldn't agree more. You will learn in this episode how Bob thinks and how regardless of your aspirations, how that thinking may improve your life and future success. So listen in to this kind, extroverted, enthusiastic, and wise researcher and learn from a man who ended up in Stockholm with the most coveted of science awards. Dr. Robert Lefkowitz, who has asked me to call him Bob, a hearty welcome to Super Psych. Thank you. Delighted to be here with you, Adam. Fantastic. You know, I love reading your book. A funny thing happened on the way to Stockholm, and I would recommend that anybody read your book. I was wondering if you could just start off this conversation about the Bob from the past, the young man in New York, the young man in Maryland, Massachusetts, North Carolina. Can we just start off a little bit with your personal story, including perhaps the kind, I believe his name was Dr. Five, who'd show up at your house with a, a bag and who inspired you to become a doctor? Absolutely. So. First of all, thank you for mentioning my book. It's a memoir with a lot of funny stories, but also some serious stuff as well. My career. As you mentioned, Adam, 
I grew up in the Bronx in the 1940s and 1950s and was totally taken with my personal physician, family physician, Dr. Joseph Fibish, who made house calls. Yeah, from an early age, five, six, seven, eight, I was just uh, besotted with this guy. He'd come to the house with that black bag <laughs> from which he would produce all manner of magical instruments, a stethoscope, which he would let me listen to my heart, thalmoscope, etc. So I would say from the early age of, as I say, seven or eight years old, I uh, dreamed of nothing but being a doctor. And I followed through on that. I was an excellent student. I went to the Bronx High School of Science, which is a special public high school admission by competitive examination for students who are gifted and talented and interested in science and math. From there to Columbia College as a chemistry major, then Columbia Medical School and house staff, which means internship and residency, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. I would have gone on from there to finish my training in medicine and cardiology and would have hoped at that point to hang out my shingle and practice medicine for the rest of my career. Those plans were interrupted by the Vietnam War, which was at its peak in the late 60s when I graduated from medical school in 66. And there was something called the doctor draft. So unlike the general conscription that was going on at that time, which was for all men 18 and up, they had a chance not to serve because you got a draft number. They picked the numbers out of a barrel, basically. If your number came up, you were drafted. Otherwise, you weren't. But for physicians, there was no lottery. Everybody was drafted. You were given, upon graduation from medical school, you were given a further one or two-year deferment. And then you went in, Army, Navy, Air Force, or public health service. The first three services I mentioned, you were pretty much guaranteed to spend a year in Vietnam. But the United States Public Health Service had certain commissions that would assign you to places in the United States. And so everybody wanted to get into the public health service for obvious reasons, to avoid going over to Vietnam. But it was very competitive, as you can imagine. But again, because I always had high grades and good recommendations, I got a commission in the public health service. I was assigned to the National Institutes of Health, where I spent about 80% of my time learning how to do research and 20% of my time seeing patients in the clinical center. Things didn't go well initially. My first year was just filled with failed experiments. I had never experienced failure before. So this was a real turning point for me. So I decided there's no way I'm going to go into research. And I made arrangements that a year later, at the end of my two-year hitch, I would go up to the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, that's the Harvard Teaching Hospital, finish my residency, and go into practice as a cardiologist, which is what my parents always hoped I would do. But as luck would have it, my research began to work. I published a couple of papers, started to like it, but not love it, <laughs> went off to the Mass General, where I threw myself back into the clinical work, which I loved and which, frankly, I was very good at. But after six months, I realized I missed the laboratory. And that was the true epiphany, sort of my second calling. I realized I needed to incorporate research into my career. So for the remainder of my time in Boston, another two and a half years, I split my time between clinical training and working in the lab. And then I was recruited to Duke in 1973, where for the first year or two, I kind of split my time almost equally between the clinics and the lab. But then my lab program 
just took off. We started making discoveries. Next thing I knew, I was spending 80, 85% of my time in the lab. And as they say, the rest is history. I think of Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders, who are so good at two sports. And you were really good at two sports, essentially. You were great as a clinician. I could tell that you really loved it. And you were great as a researcher by accident. It was a lot of funny things happened on the way to Stockholm, as it turns out. Absolutely. That was one of the most unexpected. I wrote a an autobiographical essay by invitation in a journal six or seven years ago, and I titled it A Serendipitous Scientist, because were it not for the Vietnam War, there's no way I ever would have gone into science. The group that I was a part of, highly motivated, bright, young physicians who were drafted by the public health service during the Vietnam War and sent to the NIH was an amazing group. And as I say, because it was so competitive to get these commissions in the public health service, they really got the best and the brightest. Here's an amazing statistic for you. So the program I was in was formally titled the Associate Training Program at the NIH, but it was pejoratively referred to by many as the Yellow Berets. This is a a coinage based on takeoff on the Green Berets, of course, which were the elite commando troops, special forces. Yellow meant to imply cowardice because we hadn't gone to Vietnam. Anyway, of the yellow berets who served at the NIH, and it was not a big program, maybe 50, 75 a year. Those of us who served between 64 and 72, which were the peak years of the Vietnam War, amazingly, 10 of us went on to win the Nobel Prize. These are 10 guys who, for the most part, had almost no research experience or, as in my case, no research experience prior to going to the NIH. In the aggregate, that really has had a really a major impact on how medicine is practiced today. If you take collectively the discoveries of those 10 individuals, I mean, it's pretty impressive. Entirely so. We're going to get into just the impact that at least you have had, which is so magnificent and so shocking when you get to know the statistics of your career. I mean, it's as if we are talking about Babe Ruth, Michael Jordan, and Walter Payton all rolled into one. But we're going to get into that. You're very sweet. It's very very true. But let's get in. There's so many little details that are so funny about what you did. You graduate from a very difficult high school at around the age of 16. You graduate from Columbia University at 20, I believe, or somewhere around there. You graduate from 19, but who's counting? 19, but who's counting? You graduate from medical school for crying out loud at like 23 or something crazy like that. You go on and do the impossible things. Your father, before he passed away of a cardiological illness, he really implored you to pursue a clinical life. And yet, you were called to something else. You almost felt like you were defying him in some ways while you were at MassGen. You just couldn't help it but have so-called an affair, let's call it, with research because lo and behold, research had really caught you as such a great interest. You're a clinical psychologist, so you'll appreciate this. But what you say about my father was actually a very significant experience for me. I was very close to my dad. I was an only child, and I was the apple of his eye. Mm. We were talking before about my son, the doctor. I mean, that was every middle-class New York City Jewish family's dream. And here I was basically fulfilling that dream. I mean, my father, long after he was gone, I was visiting with an uncle and out in California, actually. 
And he showed me a letter that my dad had written to him years before, in which he sent a clipping about my having graduated first in my class at Columbia Medical School. And my father said in that letter that it was the proudest day of his life when I graduated from medical school. Okay. I often think to myself, wow, if that was the proudest day of his life, and he died when I was at the NIH, Mm. okay, my career was completely unformed. I've often said to myself, what the hell would he have thought if he had seen me win the Nobel Prize? Uh, (laughs) But anyway, Thanksgiving in my first year at the NIH, I had gone there in July 1st. Now it's Thanksgiving time. I drive with my wife and already three young children to New York City to spend the holiday with my parents. And I'm miserable. It's been four or five months. Nothing's working in the lab. I've never failed at anything before. I sit down with my dad, who was an accountant. He's kind of a simple guy, but just lots of common sense. And I pour out my heart. Whenever I had a problem up to then, I always talked to my father. He really always seemed to have such common sense. And he put my mind at rest. He said, look, you you never wanted to go be a researcher anyway. Look, I mean, he says, fulfill your obligation. You'll do your two years. You'll go finish your training and you'll go into practice. I mean, just he says, relax about it. It's no big deal. You never wanted to be a scientist anyway. It was temporary. Feeling that my father and I had figured this out together and everything would be fine now, et cetera. Well, that was the last time I ever talked to my father because he dropped dead of his fourth heart attack three weeks later. And that haunted me. First of all, I grieved him. I had never had to grieve before. I grieved him mightily. And for a year, not even though I was not terribly religious, I went to the synagogue, the shul every night and said Kaddish for my dad for 11 months. But then for years afterwards, as I began going deeper and deeper into research and realizing that my true calling was in research, something held me back in terms of fully committing myself. And increasingly, I realized it was that I felt I was betraying a deal I made with my dad. We had figured it out together. I was going to go into practice, and that's what I would do. And now I was turning my back on all that. And, you know, to be melodramatic, although I never thought in those terms, my God, he'd be turning over in his grave if he knew that I was basically only spending maybe 10, 15% of my time doing clinical medicine. But finally, after a number of years and through whatever the mystical process is that we all have, that you just sort of move on and let go, that happened. But it took years. It took years. Gosh, I really want to explore that. And yet, for the sake of time, I'm going to go a different direction. And that is, let's just lay it out in basic terms. Your research, instead of had you been a clinician, you would have saved probably thousands of lives, which is no small feat. But in your case, your research could be connected to one-third to up to one-half of the drugs prescribed today, saving literally millions and millions of lives in the United States alone, but probably internationally even more. So I'd like to believe that your father somewhere, if he's still with us in any way, shape, or form, is just overjoyed with his son's rage. I'd I'd like to think so. I'd like Uh, to think so too, but can you just basically describe in the simplest terms, after so much failure, what your research was about? Basically, when I started out in research, there was an idea, not a popular idea, that there might be what are called today receptors on cells that drugs and hormones would interact with, that it would be the sort of the first step 
or which a drug or a hormone would use to interact with a cell. And the idea was that these might function as a lock and a key, where the key would be a drug, like adrenaline. And the lock would be a receptor, which very specifically allowed adrenaline and only adrenaline to fit. It was not a popular idea, and there was no evidence that it was true. But I was taken with the idea at the NIH because my mentors there liked the idea. And they introduced me to some ways of maybe approaching that. And, you know, I made some very initial steps. But when I got to Duke, I was almost obsessed with the idea because I was absolutely convinced that there must be these receptors. And if we could prove that they existed and learn what they were like and how they were regulated, that something good had to come out of that. And although I wasn't quite sure what. But the problem is there wasn't even any techniques that would allow you to do this. So I set out with my students and fellows to first develop techniques which would allow us to even show that these receptors existed and to study them. And we did that. It took us quite a few years, but we were successful. We were able to prove that receptors existed, study their characteristics, isolate them, clone their genes, find out all about how they worked, and ultimately discover a huge family of receptors, which includes the model receptor that I was looking at, the so-called beta adrenergic receptor. It's a receptor for adrenaline, hence adrenergic. But it turns out it is emblematic of a much larger family of receptors, which now is known to number about a thousand different receptors. They all have the same molecular structure. They regulate virtually every known physiological process in humans. Some examples of other members of this huge family of receptors would be histamine receptors, serotonin receptors, dopamine, glucagon. Turns out today, drugs which target these receptors, as you correctly stated, amount to about a third or a half of all FDA-approved drugs. That's about 700 drugs. You and everybody else who listens to this will have taken such drugs, whether it's common things like beta blockers or antihistamines or these new weight loss drugs that are all the rage, Wagovi and Manjuvi or whatever it is, all of them. They all target members of this family. So the research really had very, very wide impact, much wider than I ever imagined was the case. I mean, I was just pursuing my own curiosity and my own almost mystical conviction that this type of a mechanism had to exist. And I, damn it, I just wanted to prove it. Absolutely. And prove it you have. When you think about a scientist, you often think about a person sitting alone in just a, a little area, very to himself, very introverted. You have been very interpersonal now. I'm just going to give a few statistics just to justify my admiration of your work. There are approximately 20 million published scientists in the world today. Over the course of your career, many more tens of millions. In the Major League Baseball, there are 755 players in any given year. Okay, so I've established 755 per year versus, say, 20 million, in, which is your field. A good researcher has what's called an H index, which means the impact of their research is somewhere around 10, maybe 20 is pretty high. 30 is kind of about what it takes on average to get into Stockholm and be a Nobel laureate for about 84% of recipients. Stephen Hawking's is a shocking 133. <laughs> Yours is 255. <laughs> it boggles the mind, the impact of your research. And 
I'm just saying this to set this one up. Yet you are the most social, gregarious fellow ever. You believe in mentorship. If you were to move to an island, you just want care about the interpersonal stuff, less about research. You're about people. And I'm wondering, how do you marry these two things, people and research? Well, you know, it's really interesting. For me, it's just me. What you say, I think lay people have the impression of scientists as being people who, as you said, like to lock themselves away in a laboratory and just not bother with anybody. I'm the opposite. As you know, I'm obviously very (laughs) extroverted and I love people. And for me, doing the research is a very social enterprise. What I enjoy about it is sharing the experience with my students and fellows. I often say if I had to work alone on a desert island, I'd accomplish nothing because I would be miserably unhappy. But I love just interacting with people. And so for me, the the discovery, mystical kind of way, are almost a, a side product of the main thing I'm doing, which is sharing the experience of science with my students and fellows. And we just sort of, it's like chopping wood and you get all these little pieces that get thrown around. That's sort of what happens for me. I mean, mainly what I'm doing is I'm working with these people. I mean, I often tell people that my goal with every trainee, and I've had, not counting undergrads, because there are just too many of them, but not counting undergrads, I've had about 250 trainees most of them postdoctoral fellows, but a, you know, a few dozen graduate students. But my aspiration for everyone is the same, that at some point while they're working for me, they'll experience what it is like to function at their highest potential. And if I can show them what that feels like, allow them to feel what it's like to really be at that level, your own best level, then I feel I will have succeeded. And do I get there 100%? No, but it's pretty high, say 80, 85% of the time, I really do feel. And if I can get them to understand just how much effort that takes and how you have to really extend yourself to get there, then I feel they're set for the rest of their career. And I think that's why, frankly, I've had so many of my former trainees go on to very distinguished careers. Yeah, agreed. And you appear to be a unicorn in just so many ways when you read a funny thing happened on the way to Stockholm and you learn about everything you did, including making sure that you were getting home on time to be at dinner with your family of seven, including yourself, all the way to the experience of so many smart people have so much difficulty. People who identify as smart, which you must have at going to the schools you went to, the Bronx Scientific High School, the Columbia Med School, especially when there were limits on the number of Jewish people that they would even accept at that time they accepted you. The mind shift that you had to have of saying, I will embrace failure and not equate it to my own intelligence. There was a spectacular mind shift and you actually welcome failure now when your students or your postdocs come in and say, we failed. You say, fantastic. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about your relationship with failure and how it's actually led to so much success. I believe you even cited that if you have 1% of your studies right. a success, you're considered very good. 2% is considered Nobel worthy. Let's, let's, let's talk about your relationship I, with failure. I attribute that frame shift, if you will, Yes. To the time, the first year at the NIH, where for a solid year, I accounted nothing but failure. And I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. And then right in the middle of that, my father died unexpectedly. So that first year was 
definitely probably the low point of my life to this point in time. But then I came out of it and I somehow just realized that all that failure was sort of a necessary thing. I learned so much from it. And then through my career, I've had the opportunity to listen to talks, career talks by so many successful people from all walks of life. And the one thing that all these talks have in common is everybody tells you how much failure they encountered early in their career. It seems to be an absolute a rite of passage uh, to go through because you learn about the importance of persistence and resilience and just going on even when you think it's hopeless. And I counsel people all the time because people in my lab fail. I mean, uh, because that's most of what we do, as you said, is failure. So you have to really learn to deal with that. In fact, I give a talk to the research fellows at Duke every couple of years called How to Deal with Failure and Rejection in Research. Let's talk just a little bit more about that transformation. It's, you were used to getting more than 98% or higher on your exams, and now you are getting 2% or higher right. on your research. I'm thinking the metamorphosis of Bob going, can you say just even a little more about that so that maybe my listeners might feel better about their own failures and realize that these are just costs to getting to where well, I think I think the important thing is to realize there's nothing I have found more empowering for a young scientist. And I suspect a young, whatever it is, actor, singer, figure skater, whatever, than hearing from a respected older colleague who's very successful, I failed miserably. I stank. In the book, I tell the story and you, you sort of alluded to it. I was having lunch one day and I was miserable. Uh, this was at the cafeteria at the NIH. And a senior scientist whom I respected, but who was not my mentor, but he was in the same division down the hall. And he comes over and he sits down and he says, Jesse, that was my mentor. He says, Jesse tells me you're pretty unhappy these days. I said, boy, am I ever. He says, what's wrong? So I told him. And then he told me this story. He said, well, look, I'll, he says, I'll tell you my own experience. And he told me about all his failures. And then he said, look, he said, for a really successful scientist, what do you think their success rate is in terms of getting things to work? I said, I didn't know. He said, maybe 1%. She said, but now let's take the top of the line, the Nobel laureate. What percentage of his experiments do you think work? I said, I don't know. He said, could be as high as 2%. <laughs> and when I tell this story to my own people, I often add the coda that I said, but in my experience, it's not that high. So yeah, most of what we do fail. I wonder if you're comfortable talking about your own experience with coronary artery disease, what you've done about it, and how you're doing today. So, you know, I do clinical teaching as well as my research. And I often tell young physicians or physicians in waiting, medical students, that there's probably nothing that better prepares one for being a doctor than being a patient to see what it's like from the other side of the stethoscope, so to speak. But I came into this world with a big genetic burden for coronary artery disease. My father had his first heart attack at 50 and died of his fourth heart attack at 63. That was five months after I got to the NIH. My mother had a heart attack at age 56 or 57, which is very young for a woman. Her disease came along later, so there were more things available. And so she was able to live to 88 but with angina and all kinds of problems. So I knew 
bore a tremendous genetic burden, but I didn't do much about it other than take up aerobic exercise when I was in my early 20s. And I jogged a lot and hoped that would help stave off this genetic burden of coronary artery disease. I also had a high cholesterol, but I was not very good at following a diet. And there weren't many good drugs. There weren't any good drugs. But then at age 50 in 1993, I developed angina. Fortunately for me, I did not have a heart attack. Heart attack means that you actually have a blood vessel. Suddenly, coronary artery is occluded and some of your heart tissue dies. I didn't have that. I had a situation where there was reduced blood flow when I exercised. And so I would have mild discomfort or pressure in my chest when I ran. And again, one of these crazy things, here I am a cardiologist. I managed to deny the symptom for the better part of a year. Could have easily killed myself, but I did not. And basically, whenever I would feel the discomfort, I would speed up my pace just to convince myself this can't be angina. Eventually, I realized this is not good, and I had the requisite tests and underwent, ultimately, quadruple bypass surgery at age 51. And since then, I redoubled my effort, sort of the poster child for a lifestyle modification. I'm a vegan. I exercise. I meditate. Ideal body weight. Yeah, my diet is like, as I say, got all the right things. So I do everything I can to try to keep the coronary disease at bay. I take medications and knock wood. It's 30 years since my bypass surgery and I'm doing good. And you I'm look like almost 81 now. Well, you look like a million bucks and you sound like a million bucks. I mean, my thank God. you. You know, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about you being a gambling man, so to speak, because when you're doing research, essentially you're gambling, <laughs> you're taking a chance. Yes, saying, correct. <laughs> it's a fascinating thing, Adam, because in my personal life, I'm not a risk taker at all. And to the contrary, I'm very conservative in what I will do, what risks I will take, etc. But in my research, I've always been a gunslinger. I mean, I take on the craziest things. I guess part of it's because I'm really not afraid to fail. And this was even more so when I was younger. I often say to people that if I knew now just how difficult it was going to be, I never would have had the guts to take on the stuff we did during the first 10 or 15 or 20 years of my career. Never. I mean, it was suicidal when I look back on it. And yet, I don't remember ever being concerned that I would fail. I mean, I knew I would fail in the short term, but I was just absolutely convinced, God knows why, that ultimately we would succeed in what we were doing. And that turned out to be true. But as I say, if I had to do all over again from where I'm sitting at age 81, boy, it was pretty crazy. And it's funny, you call yourself a gunslinger, and yet you were not reckless. You did control the controllables. You've always maintained that you would recruit people who consider themselves lucky and people who were enthusiastic. And you reek of enthusiasm. My nickname, by the way, in high school was Enthusiatum. So I feel a very strong connection with you. I mean, you've got such a zest. So I have a feeling that in spite of the fact that you were a gunslinger, you also controlled the controllables and really were Absolutely careful. right. Yeah, yeah, right. You can't be reckless. That's a very good choice of word. You can't be reckless. And the other thing that I have found, and in my book, I talk about keys to success in one chapter and mentoring. And the first thing I always tell my trainees is that there are four keys to success in research and probably anything else. They are 
one, focus, two, focus, three, <laughs> focus. And the fourth, you have to figure out for yourself. Oh, my God. Can you define focus as you intend it? Yeah, by focus, I'm picturing a laser beam. And here's your research problem. And you're like this. Okay, you focus on that. And then people come to you and say, look, I know you're busy with this experiment, but I need you to do X, Y, and Z. No. <laughs> your focus is here. Now, part of that, a corollary, is you learn, need to learn to say no. And it's a lot easier to say no at my stage of the game than when you're a young assistant professor. But you still have to be selective. I mean, for example, I came to Duke when I was 30. And within the first few years, I was making some significant discoveries. The first chairmanship of a department that I was offered was at age 33. The dean called me in and said, the chairman of pharmacology is stepping down. I would like you to be our next chair of pharmacology. I was 33 years old. I said, no, I'm not going to do it. You even devote an entire chapter to saying no, like a parade of suitors asking you to do this and really, really attractive. These are, oh my God. these are not chopped liver that you were being offered. You were being offered really good stuff. And I'm wondering if you talk about that. You basically, you and I have, I just feel such a kinship with you. My mantra is the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And if it's not right. part of the main thing, I don't do it. That's Period. focus. You That's asked focus. me what's focus. You just define focus. And I'm wondering, yeah, I was wondering, like, a lot of people do have trouble. I mean, there's a cognitive bias. We want to say yes. We want to I conform. Mean, we want to please. How do you, a lot how do you of people, con- most people. And that to me, as I watch my colleagues in academia, because that's what I'm exposed to, who don't fulfill their potential. Okay. Almost 100% of the time, that's the problem. I had a mentor at the Mass General. I worked in his lab. The guy was brilliant, absolutely brilliant scientist. He had been a yellow beret a number of years before me. Now he was running a big lab and he was chief of cardiology. Already, that's not good. Well, this guy is a lot smarter than I will ever be. And he wrote some nice papers, but his career never went where it could have gone, I believe, if he had just known how to focus and say no, but he didn't. And I see that over and over and over again. And yeah, I mean, a lot of careers get broken up by not being able to say no. In fact, you can imagine during the mid part of my career, when I was sort of at the peak of my powers in my 40s and 50s, I would get so many job offers. I mean, you can't imagine the number, but I wouldn't even go interview for these jobs because I knew I didn't want to do it. So my secretary and I had three letters, okay, boilerplates that we would send out. So let's say it was at Podunk University in the middle of nowhere. They would get a letter, and this was mostly before email and computers. They would get a letter right back by turnaround mail, basically saying, thanks very much, not in a position to consider your offer. Let's say it was a mid-level place. First of all, I'd wait a day or two, okay, to suggest I'm thinking about. Then they'd get a somewhat more nuanced letter, thanks very much, appreciative of your offer. I know of your institution. It's a fine one, but for personal reasons, I can't. Let's say I get a Harvard, Columbia, Yale comes knocking someplace, Stanford, which they did. First of all, I wait four, five, six days before I'd even respond. Then they would get a letter dripping with angst. Okay. Oh my God. I can't believe 
your institution at your level is thinking of me for this job. I mean, I am over the moon about this, but with great sorrow and, you know, and angst, I have to tell you that for personal reasons, always undisclosed, I am unable to consider the offer, but please know I'll carry this with me the rest of my life. Something like that. And I had these three letters. Okay. And depending on the institution, they'd get one of the three and we used them all at one time. And that's so brilliant. It closed the door and allow you to refocus your efforts. Yes, exactly. Your, and I mean, it, personal it's all about this focus thing. Yeah. And of course, as with anything else, there are exceptions. Discoveries in science are almost by definition, always accidental. True discoveries are accidental. Okay. Because nobody is smart enough to imagine Fleming with the fungus growing on Petri dishes, the bacterial lawn having a halo around it. I mean, an accident. That's how most true discoveries are made. So the issue is, let's say you're focused on an experimental goal and you're doing one experiment after another and things are going along. And then all of a sudden, something comes up, which is a completely unexpected finding. And so the question, you know, the students will often say, to me, well, I want to pursue that. But of course, that's shifts the focus. Well, most of the time you shouldn't pursue. You really should stay on the main thing, as you said. Yeah, but sometimes you might miss something. So how do you know when it's that occasional time to take a brief detour? And what I tell them is, I can't explain it to you. What you have to do is just watch me over the next few years, and I won't always be right. And of course, the road not taken, sometimes we won't know. But the best I can do is show you, because training in research, many things, is an apprenticeship. I always tell people, if it's important, you can't look it up in a book. There's no way to write it down. If there was, I would do it. You just have to watch. Okay, that's what an apprenticeship is. You live with me for three, four, five years in the lab. You see, when do I break focus and chase something? When do I push it to the side? When do I keep pursuing a problem or failing, failing, failing? And when do I say, okay, we're throwing in the towel for now. There's something here we're missing and we can't get over. Let's just leave it for a while. Well, I can't explain to you how I make those decisions, but all I can do is show you what my decision is and you just watch. So that's what apprenticeship is. It's so interesting. I've heard the expression, and I'm going to completely bungle it, but I will get the point across. I came to learn from my teacher by watching him tie his shoes. And what that means is just learning from the subtle nuances. As you said, if it's important, it can't really be taught in a book. You have right. to just be with the person day in and day out. And somehow through osmosis, it's like it comes to you. And there's this interpersonal exchange of information that can't really be defined. You got it. That's exactly it. That's exactly how it works. I mean, for example, in science, probably in, in almost any academic pursuit, there is no more fundamental thing than what's your problem? What are you trying to solve? What are you working on? In the moment you choose what it is you wish to investigate, you're really setting the upper level of what you could ever achieve. I mean, if you choose something trivial, it doesn't matter how great everything works. It's still trivial. And so often when students are getting ready to leave my laboratory, one of their biggest concerns is, well, okay, Bob, what do I work on? And I tell them, well, you got to decide that. Yeah. And they'll say, well, how did you decide? And for me, it was always very simple. What am I interested in? If I'm interested, that's what I pursue. 
And if you have good instincts for what's interesting, then you'll do okay. So how do you develop those instincts? Watch me for five years and see what turns me on. I mean, when do I say, hmm, now that's a really interesting idea. Why don't we look into that? That's sort of developing taste, like an art critic. And, you know, when I go to a seminar, especially one outside my field, I'll sit down. In the first five minutes, the guy is presenting what he's going to tell us. And I listen. And sometimes I'll say to myself, that's a really interesting problem. Now my ears perk up and I'm really tuned in. Other times I'll say, good grief. Is he going to spend an hour on this? And that's why I always sit in the back of the room near the door. I may leave all the Yeah. But yeah, the idea of developing a taste for what's a good problem. I mean, something I've always wished I could stand, but I can't. It's when mathematicians say it's a beautiful equation. I can't appreciate what a beautiful equation is. But I can appreciate within a certain realm, the field, what's a beautiful problem to work on. I could not agree with you more. That's so brilliantly said. It was indeed the North Star, which guided me to my own doctoral dissertation. I was genuinely interested in it. And I was, no joke, not an exaggeration. I was smiling the entire time I wrote it because I was so curious about it. That's the key. And that's what stood me in good stead my whole career right up to the moment. I only work on it if I'm really interested. When a new person comes to my laboratory, we have various chats about choosing what they're going to work on. And with rare exceptions, I never compel anybody to work on anything. We choose the problem together. And I I always tell them there are two keys to success in my lab that are necessary but not sufficient for you to be successful here. One is that you're really interested in the problem. And two, I'm really interested in the problem. I said, if we're missing either of those, it doesn't bode well. It doesn't guarantee success, but it doesn't bode well if one of us is not excited. Bob, I got to share something with you. It's so funny. When my wife and I were choosing where we were going to live, she said to me, unless both of us are happy, neither of us are happy. That's exactly right. You got it. You got it. Because you're going to live with that decision for a while. If one of you is not happy, not going to be good. It will be what I call consent and resent. (laughs) Yes, I like it. I'm going to ask you my final magical question. I know you're a scientist, but I'm going to go magical for just a second if you can suspend your disbelief. Bob, if you had the magical powers to confer upon all humanity, one insight or skill that would dramatically improve the lives of the individual and perhaps society at large, what would that insight or skill be? And how do you imagine it would impact the individual as well as possibly society at large? I would say the best advice I could give people is, and it sounds trite, but you know, things are trite for a reason because often they're true. Pursue your own dream, your own course, and don't worry so much about what everybody else thinks about it. As we talked about, that's what I did. And I did worry about how much my father thought about it, even though he wasn't here in person, but his memory. But I finally was able to let go of that and say, well, this is my dream. This is what I'm feeling called to do. And the heck with what anybody else. And the same thing when we're talking about focus and saying no to people. Well, yeah, especially when your boss wants you to do something and you say no, I mean, he's not going to be happy. So of course, we all want to please people, but don't forget to please yourself in the process. Oh, it's so interesting. We have these social brains that have so many strengths associated with that social tendency that we have. and yet. Sometimes the biggest yes we can give to ourselves is a no to someone else, as you so aptly put. 
I'm beyond grateful to have time with you, Bob. This has been. It was a pleasure indeed. Enjoyed it very much. If you ever find yourself in this area, I hope you'll stop by the campus and uh, look me up. Oh, Bob, it would be just a great pleasure. Thank you so much. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.